Hi everyone, you're listening to the Action Is, an EWB podcast featuring socio-technical professionals who are changing the engineering profession and the world so that all people and living things can thrive. EWB Australia acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past, present and emerging and know that this land was never ceded. We respect their stories, their wisdom and knowledge systems and their ongoing deep connection to land, water and community. Hello and welcome to the Actioneers. My name is Mitch Horrocks and I'm the Technology Development Lead here at Engineers Without Borders Australia. Today, I am joined by Jane McMaster, Chief Engineer at Engineers Australia. Jane has worked as an aerospace, mechanical and systems design engineer in Australia and internationally, focusing primarily on supersonic flight vehicle design, operations research and rapid prototyping in the defence and cyber security sectors. Prior to becoming Chief Engineer at Engineers Australia, she developed a generalised approach for complex problem solving, which she taught across all faculties at universities and to staff from Commonwealth and state and territory government departments. Jane, it is an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thanks, Mitch. I'm delighted to be here. Firstly, congratulations on being appointed as the inaugural Chief Engineer at Engineers Australia. We'll touch on that role there a bit later. For now, I would love to hear a bit about your journey so far as an engineer. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you a, a few minutes of, of overview of my career as an engineer. Um, it began, I guess, almost 30, 31 years ago. Um, uh, it, there's a bit of a story as to why I became an engineer. I didn't have engineering on my short list of, of courses to study at university initially. Um, but circumstances uh, were that I did end up choosing engineering. Uh, I wanted to study aerospace engineering. My father was a Qantas pilot but chose mechanical. A lot, uh, many people had, had advised me that there were more jobs available as a mechanical engineer. And because mechanical and aerospace were so similar, I decided to pursue the mechanical route. And look, I've never regretted the decision to study engineering. Um, it has informed and shaped my career for the last 30 years. And I've, you know, I've been very grateful for the opportunities it's presented to me. I did three internships while I was at university as part of a scholarship that I was lucky enough to be a part of, the Chancellor's uh, Scholarship at Sydney University. And I was lucky enough to work in Borneo, as well as um, a couple of other engineering organisations in Australia as an engineering student. And that was fantastic. I learned a lot. As happens to many engineering graduates, though, I was lured into the world of management consulting actually, for a brief period after I graduated. So I did that. I worked in institutional banking of all places where I had very little uh, knowledge or experience, but I learned a lot. And I'm, I'm not, I don't regret having that chapter of my career because I got to understand, you know, a little bit about a different sector and a different discipline and certainly learned a lot of techniques, but I missed the technical side of engineering. So after about 18 months or two years, I think it was I looked for a technical engineering job and I was really fortunate enough to come across an opportunity with British Aerospace, as it was at the time, it's now BAE Systems, uh, working in their Melbourne office um, on a NATO program of all things. Australia was a guest nation for the NATO program, working on a supersonic ship self-defence system. And that was a really formative period of my career. I was lucky enough to work on that project in particular for nearly 10 years, right from the beginning of the project, when the design was really nothing more than a blank sheet of paper, right through to the end when the system went into production. And I say that that was a formative period of my career because I learned so much about what 
good design means and what it takes to develop a complex technological system from a blank sheet of paper through to production and how to collaborate with nine other countries, you know, working with different systems of units and things. It was just such an incredibly valuable experience and probably my favourite chapter of my career competing very fiercely with my current one, of course. I ended up working in the defence sector for nearly 15 years and then decided on a little bit of a career change and ended up working in policy in the strategy unit of the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. I was there for six years and learned a lot about how government works and policies made and became quite passionate about applying generalised engineering techniques to policy development. So I ended up running my own business for six years, teaching engineering approaches and, and principles into the public sector and at university. And I love that as well. During that time, I was a volunteer at Engineers Australia because, um, again, I was missing my engineering roots and, and networks. So I volunteered at Engineers Australia. And that's when I became aware that the role of Chief Engineer at Engineers Australia uh, was open and three weeks later, I found myself to be in the position of the first Chief Engineer at Engineers Australia. And I've been here for 18 months or so, and I've loved every minute. Just just love working back in the engineering um, field. Yeah, fantastic. I really like how each step along the way, even though sometimes it would take you outside of the normal engineering world, you somehow managed to incorporate those engineering skills and you kind of wanted to go in there with that engineer's mindset. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And obviously now you're sort of back in that, you know, in the thick of things. Do you ever look back on when you were a kid or a teenager and see some moments where it was actually kind of like secretly obvious that you were going to be an engineer? I know that you said you, it wasn't even one of your, you know, first selected um, professions, but have you looked back and thought, wow, actually, you know what? I was always going to be something like this. Was it, was it problem solving something you did as a child? I think it probably was, and I think problem solving has absolutely been the common thread uh, throughout my, you know, schooling and um, higher education and career. Definitely, I've always been scribbling on bits of paper, you know, how to solve this problem or that, or how we would go about solving problems um, in a in a better way. But I didn't have engineering on my list of preferred uh, course choices probably because I didn't know what engineers actually did and what engineering was. And I still think our profession suffers from that a little bit today. We're a little bit abstract as a profession and there's a few reasons for that. Um, so, no, there was, there was no, no inkling throughout my schooling that engineering um, was, you know, something that I would end up doing, although I, I mentioned that my father was a Qantas pilot and his father before him. So aviation has always run through um, our family as a very strong theme. Um, but yes, as I said, always enjoyed um, problem solving. It wasn't until I had a conversation with the principal of a residential college at university uh, where I even considered engineering. She was the one who looked at my subject choices and marks and observed that I quite liked science and mathematics and had I considered engineering, I said I hadn't, didn't really know what it was. So uh, she encouraged me to explore engineering and, and it was from that moment, you know, after I left school really that I considered engineering and, and as I said, I haven't regretted it for a moment. Have you ever gone back to that teacher, that advisor and said, you know, thanks for letting me know, thanks for sort of giving me that opportunity? I've often thought about it and now that you've mentioned it after this podcast recording, I might go and see if I can find her contact details and let her know. But the really interesting point about that is that since I've been in the role of chief engineer, one of the things that we're looking at doing really important 
is encouraging more young people to choose to study engineering. So I've been asking almost every engineer that I come across, and there's a lot of them, you know, what was it that made you choose to study engineering? And I'm particularly asking young engineers about this. And the most common answer by far is that they've had a single conversation with someone that they know about engineering. And this to me is extremely powerful, not only because it resonates strongly with my own experience, but because of how often I hear this response. So we actually have a large piece of research underway at the moment to, to formalise uh, these insights. Um, and if the research findings confirm that the power of conversations between young people and engineers who can share their stories of what it's like to be an engineer and the exciting work that they do, then we'll be designing a campaign and some initiatives around encouraging all engineers to have a conversation with a young person about, you know, the exciting opportunities available to them if they choose to study engineering in their higher education. Yeah, fantastic. I really like the idea that so many people have actually decided to take the jump from that one conversation. Yeah, that's, but sometimes that's all it takes. Sometimes, um, yeah. As you say, engineering is, you know, kind of that abstract and I think of it as like a very broad discipline. Do you think that is why the identity of engineers is still a work in progress? I think that's a big part of the reason. I mean, for those of you out there who are engineers, you'll know how broad our profession is. I mean, conventionally, traditionally, we spanned just a few disciplines, uh, civil and military to begin with, and then chemical, mechanical and structural um, and electrical. And then, you know, 30, 25, 30 years ago, we branched into biomedical. Um, but nowadays, you know, the, the number of fields or areas of practice or sub-disciplines of engineering, it's proliferating so much as technology uh, develops at such a, such a, a pace. Um, you can do nuclear engineering, quantum engineering. There are just so many uh, opportunities. And so I think it's this breadth that means that we really struggle to find what it is that unites all fields of engineering. And, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this because it's important for our profession to be able to communicate to others, especially people who aren't engineers, what engineering is. Um, not only because of the challenge of encouraging more young people to choose to study engineering, but also, you know, in important areas such as legislation, as statutory registration for engineers comes in, we have to be able to define what the work of an engineer is. So I spend quite a bit of time thinking about this. I also ask a lot of engineers this question too, what do you think engineering is? And I often put the, the question on social media. And by the far the most common answer that I receive is some variation of problem solving, something like creative problem solvers or with the innovative problem solvers and so forth. So I am still trying to find a, a, a common definition for engineering, something that unites all, all fields. But I think there's another reason why um, our identity isn't as strong as it otherwise might be. And that's because people don't often engage with engineers directly in the same way that they do as teachers and or doctors and so forth. And there aren't as many TV shows around, about engineers as there are about lawyers, for example. I can't think of a TV show about engineers since MacGyver, perhaps. Um, so I think because we're a little bit more distant, a little bit more removed from people, it's, it's a little bit more difficult for them to understand our work. So I think we've got to get better at telling stories about our work because there's rarely a minute in our day where people don't engage with the work of engineers. Technology is everywhere. So um, I do think it's something that we can address uh, by telling the stories of engineering work to more people. <laughs> 
I know you're passionate about this idea of complex problem solving. Um, so maybe give us a bit of a background on what you, the work that you've been doing with that sort of complex problem solving. And are engineers taught this in institutions? And why is it so important for us to have that, that skill set? I think it's really important for us to have this skill set and mindset because I think it's actually a completely different skill set and a completely different approach to the problem-solving approach that we're typically taught at school, which I, which I refer to as a linear approach to problem-solving, which is really good for simple problems but really not good for complicated and complex problems. I think engineers are typically taught how to solve problems for complicated problems where we do actually end up arrive at a solution where we have a high level of confidence the solution will work. Complex problem-solving is slightly different because I think there's, there's another level of uncertainty. We can never be totally sure about whether our solution will work. And these are, uh, I define complex problems a bit like wicked problems are defined. There's a high level of uncertainty, many moving interrelated parts, spanning many disciplines, and there's no single right answer. But the way engineers are trained um, can be adapted for complex problems. And that, that approach I call learning and adaptive design. So instead of the linear approach to problem solving where you start off with a problem and then you just design a solution and then you build it and then you, you know, implement it, and for simple problems, that works, but for complex problems, it doesn't work because there are so many unknowns and you have to test your early ideas and learn what works and what doesn't and then refine that um, and then test it again to see what's working and what doesn't and understand why and then refine it again. So it's a very iterative approach to problem solving um, and it is transdisciplinary. So you need to um, consider the perspectives of many other uh, sectors, disciplines, professions in in developing your your problem, um, your solution for the problem. So it's a really important skill set. I became very passionate about the need for this skill set when I was working in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. We're in the strategy unit and we were tasked to look at whatever was at the top of the priority list for whoever was at the Prime Minister at the time. And so it would be we would be looking at policy challenges such as national security, education, water reform, um, uh, economic security for women in later life. So these policy challenges were incredibly complex. And I felt sometimes frustrated that we weren't making as much progress as we could be. And, and part of me understood why these, these challenges are so complex that it's very hard to make progress. But I couldn't help but feel that if we applied a bit more structure to our problem-solving approach, as engineers do, that we'd make a little bit more uh, progress. And so I started in my own time delivering seminars to uh, policy people, policy advisors on engineering, generalised engineering techniques, how to frame a problem, thinking about the constraints, thinking about the requirements of the solution and so forth. And these, um, these were received very well. And so after about six years, I bit the bullet and decided to, to do this full time and developed a, a generalised approach for complex problem solving framed around questions. The approach is called 20 questions for complex problem solving strategy and design. And the 20 questions are questions. They don't provide the answers because the answers are context specific, but the questions remain the same, I think, for just about any challenge that we're working on. And so these questions prompted you to think about what are the most important things you need to think about when you're trying to develop a solution for a really complex challenge. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think a lot of the work that we do at EWB kind of relates to that. It's completely different to, you know, policymaking, but we're in remote areas of the countries that we work in. We're dealing with issues that these communities have faced for so long and it, it can't be solved with a linear engineering process. You know, it's iterative. It's always creating more issues as you go along, but you have to solve that. And you can mostly solve that with the help of the communities, you know, like it's a really different mindset. Now, one of your roles with Engineers Australia is to provide leadership in crucial areas of infrastructure, energy, technology, and climate change. From a climate change perspective, what role do you believe engineers play in achieving the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals? Well, I think engineers play a crucially important role. Um, the Sustainable Development Goals are really quite central to a lot of engineering work. Um, a lot of your listeners might not know that the International Engineering Alliance uh, in Australia, Engineers Australia, is the signatory to the IEA. The IEA uh, hold the international benchmarks for engineering competencies, and they've just reviewed and updated their graduate attributes and professional competencies in June 2021. And one of the changes was to explicitly include a reference to the sustainable development goals. Engineers Australia, our professional competencies for engineers uh, align to the IEA uh, competencies, professional competencies, and our competencies are being reviewed this year to ensure that they're future focused and relevant and importantly align with the IEA competencies. So sustainability, um, sustainable development goals uh, will be embedded in those competencies. Um, sustainability considerations are also explicitly mentioned in the Engineers Australia Code of Ethics, and we're also considering changing our continuing professional development policy to include sustainability CPD as a mandatory component of the ongoing training engineers need to do to maintain their credentials. Um, in November, Engineers Australia published our updated climate change position statement which captures important directions our profession needs to take in relation to climate change. Um, and we've also recently held our inaugural Climate um, Smart Engineering Conference in November last year, where Al Gore was our keynote speaker amongst many other influential people in this space. It was a really inspiring and thought-provoking few days and the SDGs were an important theme of the conference and, and all our work since. So this week we celebrate World Engineering Day for Sustainable Development. What does sustainable development mean for Jane McMaster? Well, I like the traditional interpretation of the term sustainability, which refers to the idea that whatever we do today won't be to the detriment of future generations. Ideally, we should be working so that when, whatever we do today improves society, not only for our current communities, but future ones as well. On a practical level, though, what it means for our day-to-day -day work, well, I think it means incorporating principles around the circular economy and zero or net zero emissions, as well as importantly thinking about the implications and externalities of our work so that the negative ones are removed or minimised as much as possible and the positive ones are maximised. I like using the pestle mnemonic for this purpose. I'm not sure if your listeners have, have used um, that or heard of it before, but PESL stands for Political, Economic, Social, Technological, Legal and Environmental. And it's just a useful little tool to help remind you of the lenses or dimensions we should think about our work through. For example, what are the environmental implications of this work? What are the social implications? What are the legal and so forth? Um, and I like adding plus to it to indicate that for your particular project, there are probably other lenses to consider as well, for example, safety or governance. Um, and I think the other thing to mention is that the EA Code of Ethics specifically addresses the need for engineers to promote sustainability in their work. 
It makes reference to the importance of engaging responsibly, responsibly with the community and other stakeholders. It references practicing engineering to foster the health, safety and well-being of the community and the environment, and also balancing the needs of the present with the needs of future generations. Do you believe that we as engineers have a duty to change the world around us because of our skill set? Look, I think we do, but I also think most of us would probably be out of work if we weren't working to change the world around us. That's typically what engineers do. But of course, now more than ever, we need to be most mindful of how we change the world around us. So I think we need to be mindful even more than ever before of the externalities of our work. What are the social implications of our work? What are the environmental implications? Being mindful of these over the full life cycle of the technology or other solutions we're developing is, is more important than it ever has been. All Engineers Australia's members sign up to abiding by the Code of Ethics, which I mentioned before, and that stipulates four elements that describe how engineers should work. And those four elements are demonstrating integrity, practicing competently, exercising leadership and promoting sustainability. Um, and so we're very mindful of, of the work that engineers do and, and importantly, how we do it. I'm also a board member of the Australian Council of Professions and ACOP states that a profession tends to have a code of ethics which governs the activities of a profession and such codes require behaviour and practice beyond the personal moral obligations of an individual. They define and demand high standards of behaviour in respect to the services provided to the public and in dealing with professional challenges and often these codes are enforced by the profession and are acknowledged and accepted by the community. So I think as members of a profession, engineering is a profession, engineers do have a duty to change the world around us but to do so in a way that is acceptable to the community yeah that's a really fantastic um fantastic idea and i like the idea that you know us as a profession it doesn't matter which sector of you know engineering you're in there is so many different avenues and just because you know ewb a lot of the work we do is on the ground but just because we're not on the ground doesn't mean that all the other things that we're doing behind the scenes don't um don't have an impact there's such a significant part of the world that is falling behind because they don't have access to technology that the rest of the world has. What do you think we need to do to change that? Well, I think it's starting to change. I mean, there are some wonderful initiatives and organisations around the world. EWB is one such organisation. And I think corporates in the developed world are playing um, an increasingly important role in their social responsibility programs, which is, which is really important. Um, entrepreneurship obviously plays a really important role. One of the projects um, of recent years that um, I loved talking about and used when I was teaching is the idea of a socket, which is a, a soccer ball that, that is still being used actually in developing countries, in particularly in areas which don't have electricity systems and where generators are often used to provide energy and electricity. These soccer balls had a device inside that stored energy and converted it to electricity. Um, so the soccer ball would be kicked around during the day. So that was that was great for the school kids, getting them out and about and, and kicking a soccer ball around. And then at night, they could plug in a little light to their soccer ball. Um, and the light was what they could use to read and do their homework by. It was a, a small piece of incredible technology um, that, that really made a difference to these very remote and regional areas. Subsequent iterations of the socket or soccer ball design allowed mobile phones to be plugged in and, and recharged. So, you know, there can be just small examples and large examples of where technology 
is gradually making its way into these areas. And of course, um, there's so much more that needs to be done. I think one of the things that needs to change is the economic systems around this. I think there needs to be the right economic incentives for the people and organisations who are able to make a difference are incentivized to make a difference. So that can always help too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like that, that socket idea because number one, the more the kids get out, the more that they're going to power their home. And then obviously, you know, they get fit at the same time. Not that I think that they'd need any other reason to get outside. I'm sure they're doing that, you know, for hours and hours anyway. Um, At EWB, a lot of the work that I oversee requires our engineers on the ground in the countries we work in to be empathetic, human-centred designers with engineering skills layered on top of that. Do you see human-centred design skills becoming more important to engineers in the future? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, human-centred design is hopefully becoming more mainstream. I think, you know, uh, engineering for engineering work to work well for those for whom it is intended, it absolutely needs to take um, that approach. There's only, I would just um, be mindful that sometimes I think about human-centred designers potentially incorporating a, a slight weakness, and that is that humans aren't the only group that we should be designing for. There are environmental and impacts on other species too, for example. So I actually sometimes use the term outcomes-focused design, where outcomes absolutely needs to include the human user requirements and desired outcomes, but these other considerations are also taken into account. But yes, absolutely. I think if we're not taking into account what the ultimate desired outcomes are from the project or technology that we're working on, then we're risking the success of the programs. And has human-centered design been around engineering for a while? And if not, what was sort of holding it back from um, looking at human-centered design as something that needs to be incorporated into coursework or something of that sort? Look, I think the the actual term human-centred design is relatively new. And when I say relatively new, maybe the last 10 to 15 years, about the same time that design thinking became a thing. But really the principles behind user-centred design and design thinking have been around for a long time. I mean, I work in the defence industry and uh, you can imagine with defence systems, they're highly precise, uh, sophisticated systems and you don't develop or design a highly sophisticated, you know, high precision um, technological system without having a very clear understanding of what the outcomes and requirements are. And I think we just need to extend that idea and that principle of being very clear on what outcomes and requirements you want um, to other areas of, of engineering. And I think that's really all it is, is just making sure that you spend enough time up front thinking about well, actually, we're about to embark on a project here. What actually are the outcomes that we want it to result in, um, both from a user perspective, but also from, you know, those second and third order effects, those externalities that I was talking about before. So it's just spending time up front, understanding the requirements, understanding what you want to change as a result of your project, what does success look like, and then capturing that and keeping an open mind that these might change as you do some more work and discover new things. And that's part of that, that idea, I think, of, of design thinking and learning and adaptive design where it's iterative and you keep an open mind to the greatest extent possible and, and uh, refine things as you learn things along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Iterative design is yeah such an important skill to have, you know, not, not thinking that, okay, now is, is the finish line, not being happy with sort of a project that breaches sort of, you know, seven out of eight goals, but 
continuing to design, continuing to test ideas, continuing to hear different perspectives and bring other people to the table, I think is so important for the work that we do. So you are the Senior Strategy Advisor for the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. What role do engineers play in policy priorities regarding climate change? Well, I think there's a couple of things there. I think, you know, society relies on engineers for technology. You know, that's what engineers do. Uh, we do other things, but we're really good at technology. And since technology is everywhere these days and absolutely central to minimising effects of climate change, engineers need to be involved at all stages of the technology life cycle, from the planning, design, test, build, integration, commissioning, operation, maintenance and decommissioning. That's a given. Um, but perhaps somewhat surprisingly, engineers are not always involved in all stages, in particular the planning and integration phases, um, you know, especially for our very complex systems such as uh, power systems and electricity grids and so forth. So it's important that engineers are involved because technology doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's always situated in a social, economic, political and environmental context. Um, but I think the second aspect here is that engineers can also contribute a very valuable role in thinking about climate change in ways broader than just technology. So as we've just been talking about, as engineers, we're trained as complex problem solvers, critical thinkers and systems thinkers. And because the challenges we face as a society are becoming more complex, more cross-cutting, engineers can also play that very important role in the broader context than the technology itself helping to situate technology in the broader social, economic and cultural systems as well and understanding how um, technology needs to work with those other systems and what the interdependencies are and what the information flows are that need to happen between them. So I think engineers can apply their systems thinking, their critical thinking, their design and problem solving skills to these higher level aspects as well. Do you think Australia as a country, do you think we're doing enough? Do you think we're on the right path? Uh, for climate change? Yeah. I think there's, we, there is absolutely always room to do more. Absolutely. I think there are many sectors uh, which are doing as much as they can, um, given the constraints um, in place. But as a country, I definitely think that we can be doing more. And Engineers Australia is working very hard to support our profession uh, to be as impactful and influential as it can uh, in minimising the effects of climate change. Fantastic. And what are some things that you've um, maybe brought in or brought to the attention or focused on since you've taken over as the chief engineer in terms of sustainable development? Okay, well, uh, I mentioned a couple before. Um, we're trying to uh, change our CPD policy requirements to ensure that there's uh, a mandatory uh, component um, of training that, that's sustainability focused because that's so important. We've actually um, brought on board some dedicated staff to work on climate change and sustainability, both from a policy and advocacy perspective, but also from a climate um, smart engineering initiative perspective. So we're really looking at the very what are the very practical things that Engineers Australia can do to support our profession to be more impactful and influential on climate change? So we kicked that work off this year and we're hosting a whole range of roundtables with industry, government, academia, our members and so forth to get ideas on what we could focus on um, that, that plays to EA's strengths uh, to, to support our profession. So there's a range of things that we're doing on the sustainability and climate change front. 
Yeah, fantastic. And uh, this week we celebrate World Engineering Day for Sustainable Development. So I know that's going to kickstart a whole lot of conversations, um, hopefully a lot, you know, around what we're going to do in the next couple of years. And it sounds like you guys are doing a fantastic job already. If you had a crystal ball in the next 10 years, what do you think will be engineering's greatest achievement? I definitely hope it will be that our profession underpins the transition to clean energy, including for transport and manufacturing, the sustainable built environment and a healthy planet. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Jane. I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you and learning about your thoughts and the role engineers play in the world around us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Mitch. The creation of this podcast would not have been possible without the passion and expertise of our creative team, Julian Rausch, Isabella Fredhaim and Melanie Audrey. To learn more about this podcast, follow The Actioneers on Instagram. And for this episode's transcript and show notes, please visit our website at ewb.org.au forward slash podcast. And as always, please like, subscribe and leave us a review. This episode is recorded for World Engineering for Sustainable Development Day 2022. With the theme Build Back Wiser, it is a call to action for all engineers to bring greater foresight to their work. Put simply, a future that mitigates against today's most critical challenges is only possible through a sustainable engineering approach. If you want to know more about how engineers like you are making a sustained difference for people and planet, you can sign up at ewb.org.au forward slash sustainable hyphen engineering hyphen updates.